it's my sixth wedding anniversary. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm here with you guys, which shows my priorities, I guess. They're out of whack. Who's writing that book on boundaries? Who had that book? Boundaries? Boundaries are for wimps. All right. <laughs> what a church word, boundaries. Like, I don't even know any other place in the world that that word exists. Except here, like, you should have boundaries. Obviously, I've got an issue with them. But no, thanks to Morgan, who babysat Christine last night. Lena and I did go out. We actually went out last night and had fun. It was, like, so weird to be just the two of us again. We're like, this feels comfortable. This feels like the way, like, you know, and I thought it was just me. And then Lena's like, no, I really like This is really nice. We should do this more often, you know? <laughs> All right, we're starting a new series, as you know, tonight. And this is going to take us a number of weeks, but... Due to a lot of discussion and some requests, we're going to delve into the background behind our scriptures. Tonight, what we're going to do is we're going to lay it out. Tonight's our actual official intro. We're going to kind of lay out where we're going, what we're doing, why we're doing it, and uh, hear some feedback from you. Last week, you had the opportunity to write down on cards some of the questions you had. If you didn't do that or you have more questions, there's some cards in the back. Just uh, write it on the card and give me the card. We'll see if we can add some of these in here. But as you'll see tonight, we got plenty of questions already. So... First, let's start and figure out kind of why we're doing this. We always start each series with just some justification of why we're spending the time that we steward. So here's some observations that led us to do this series. I think my first observation is that almost everything we know about the Bible we've heard in a sermon. and We've never actually done our own study. Now, I know a couple of you have. Some of you studied it more in depth. But the general rule is we kind of tend to hear about it. It's hearsay. The second thing is, I think few of us have looked at the doctrines and even the common beliefs that we have about how this book came to be in our hands. We've never really done that wrestling. How did we get this book? And we keep citing back to this book, and some of us have stronger views of this book, but we haven't really even talked about how it got here. I think that's probably time we do that, especially after doing a series like Matthew, where we've gone through a whole book and we spent a lot of time talking about different nuances of how it was written. Some questions came out, I thought, let's address some of them. And finally, I think doubt abounds regarding the authority and accuracy of Scripture. Not in this group only, everywhere. I hear that commonly cited as a stumbling block or even just as a reason just to dismiss Christianity altogether. doesn't seem to be much knowledge about it, just a lot of doubt about it. So nobody's really looking behind it. I think we should do that. All right, here's some of the things we're going to cover. In the coming weeks, we're going to cover some lower textual criticism or just basically like, how did this thing get copied? How did it get transmitted to us? All right, we're not going to be critiquing the text itself and what it means. In fact, you'll notice up here, I haven't put up anything about interpretation of Scripture. This is going to take us long enough just to get to the basics of how did we get the book. You'll see we're going to talk about inspiration. Also, the canon itself. Like what's in the Old Testament? What's in the New Testament? Who decided that? What was the criteria they used? You'll see your own questions tonight. We're going to talk about inerrancy and infallibility. Some of you even use them interchangeably. They're different concepts. We're going to actually talk about what they are and see how you feel about them. And we're going to talk about translation, like the language translation, like how, why we have different versions. So that's what we're covering. There's a lot we're not covering. In fact, there's more that we're not covering than that we are. But this is going to take us enough time, and I think this will at least give us a start. And Hopefully, in the future, we can come back and look at some of those other topics. So let's look at your questions. I've categorized them in the way that we're going to go through. 
This will help you if you have other questions. Maybe you think of some, grab a card and write them down. Who wrote the early books of the Bible? And how? How was the Old Testament passed down? How accurately was the Old Testament transmitted? What did it mean for someone to author a book in the ancient Near East? What was written down during the time the first Hebrew scriptures were penned? What other similar forms of literature existed? What do we make of the difference in quotations, for example, when Paul or one of the gospel writers quotes the Old Testament and it's slightly different than the original wording? How can we know that the scribes didn't fudge things on purpose? You guys are a little skeptical. If you weren't there to see it with your own eyes, they probably were fudging all sorts of stuff, right? That's the uh, <laughs> assumption in the question, right? Some questions about the canon itself. And again, think of the canon right now until we define it more. as just the official list of what's in and what's out. Who decided that there needed to be a canon and why? What was the test for whether something was included in the canon? Who made the decision on the order of the books? and which books to include. Which books or letters were left out and what led to their exclusion? What books were almost not included and why did they remain in the canon? Why do different churches have different canons? There's an assumption in that question, by the way. Why are there some verses included but with caveats? And maybe another way to look at it is like there's some footnotes down at the bottom of some of your or what we call margin notes. What other writings were still highly regarded, even if not included? Why is the book of Enoch quoted in the New Testament but not found in the canon? What's the point of having four different gospel accounts? Why isn't there just one account with everything combined? Knowing that humans decided what to include and exclude, how loosely do we hold to its infallibility? How should we view non-canonical texts? Should we be alarmed by how out there they can be? How do we know that attributed books really came from those sources? Why should we adhere to decisions by church councils about what books should be included in the Bible? Isn't that just like us to go, who cares, man? Those people are dead. Let's do it all over again. <laughs> they have no relevance to my life. Should we read Bibles that have more books than the Protestant Bible. Don't do this, you might explode. <laughs> Did the Catholics have 66 books before the Reformation? We also had questions on language and translation. What were the original languages that each book was written in? Just so you don't think I'm going to just give questions and no answers tonight, I'll answer that one. How's that? Is that easy? Old Testament, Hebrew, New Testament, Greek, but there is Aramaic actually in a couple of different books in each. But primarily, we're going to use the rule Old Testament, Hebrew, New Testament, Koinine Greek, which is kind of like a post-classical common form of Greek. But like I said, there's still some Aramaic preserved here and there, which is a close cousin of Hebrew. Why are there so many translations or versions of the Bible? Which is the most accurate translation? Which translations of the Bible should we use more of and which ones should we use less of? How do editors of a new translation or version of the Bible decide what to change? Which Bible is better, the King James Version or the NIV? Again, just so that I don't leave all questions, I'll actually answer that one. 
the NIV, in my opinion. And my opinion, by the way, is based on the fact that, as you'll see when we go through this series, that the more that time goes forward and we find earlier and earlier manuscripts and we learn more and more about the ancient languages, the better our translations are. They're just translations, but we'll cover that when we get there. Uh, contrary to some people who want to make the King James like some sort of inspired translation, like actually. <laughs> I mean, there is that, there are some people who actually believe that. It's somehow inspired because the Holy Spirit prefers English. It just wasn't around when he was doing most of his earlier work. Okay? Inspiration. What does God inspired mean? Who came up with the idea? What is it based on? What does it mean for a writer to be inspired by the Holy Spirit? Where does inspiration occur before writing, during writing? How do we make sense of the fact that it was inspired by God, yet written by humans, and some books by more than one author? How much of the Bible can be attributed to culture as far as issues related to gender? Thank you, Monique, for including that. <laughs> How do we grapple with God's sovereignty when we consider human authorship and human fallibility? Inerrancy and infallibility. Is the Bible without errors? If not, do we know what's reliable and what's not? Where does the doctrine of biblical inerrancy come from? What would it mean if we discovered evidence that contradicted the Bible? There's some questions we're not covering, by the way. I had plenty of these. Let me show you what we're not covering, just so you, don't, you know I read all of them, you know, consider them. Some of them just didn't fit. And it's not because they're bad questions, it's just because we would be on these questions long enough. I'm trying to limit it, but you, we can talk about them afterwards like we always do. So here's one that we're not covering, like what are the dates of each book that were written? I mean, the reason we're not going to do that is because each book deserves and merits some time on its own. Like, when was it written? Who wrote it? And how do we know that? That would take too long to go through all 66 books and deal with all the authorship and dating issues for each book. Second, what's the historical validity for the contents of the Bible? Like, we're not covering archaeology and anthropology and external evidences of the Bible. We're really just talking about how we got this book. I'm not saying those aren't valuable resources. It's just beyond our scope this time. Again, for what scientific proof or outside sources are there to verify the Bible's more than a bunch of fables and fairy tales, you know? That question was written just so I could say that out loud and see if God was going to strike me down for even repeating it, all right? Um, again, I think there's a lot of scientific evidence. I think there's a lot of archaeological evidence. I just, we're not going to go into it. What proof can we offer that the Bible is inspired and true to someone who doesn't believe that it is authoritative? That's the ultimate question. I don't know. If somebody's made up their mind that it's not authoritative in their life, that's, there's really not much we can do. What do you say to someone that believes the Bible and all organized religion was just created to control the masses? Tell them to read Karl Marx. You know, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> How can there be such a vast distinction between the Testaments, an angry God who endorsed one nation above all others versus a God who humbles himself in the incarnation, suffering and death as an expression of love? It's a brilliant question. But it's going to take us too much into harmonization and interpretation and all those kinds of things and, again, beyond the scope. What are the primary views currently on how to interpret the Bible? We're just going to leave interpretation until our next series on this. What was the primary perspective on interpretation for the people who determined the canon? That is kind of fair but we'll cover it kind of in the way that they just laid down the rules. How do we deal with conflicting opinions presented in the Bible, like genocide versus loving enemies, women's roles, etc.? 
um, set aside because we're not delving into that topic yet. How do we know what parts of Scripture are to inform our living? In what way should we be influenced by the Bible? We need to establish its authority first and then let that be a mark of obedience afterwards, but we still have work to do to get there. Didn't Constantine convene a biblical council to solidify political power in the Roman Empire? Again, motives and all historical data is probably beyond what we're doing, but the reason I'm not going to put that into issues like canonization is because I'm going to take the position that the canon was pretty much known well before Constantine, so it won't be directly relevant. Is the Bible authoritative because the Holy Spirit is directing the church? Where does that stop? Where do we draw the line? And that's going to lead us into the discussion about tradition and scripture, and is scripture the only thing, and the doctrine of sola scriptura, again, outside of our discussion, at least in here. But all these things are fair game for us to talk about. I'm just saying we're not going to cover them in this series, but we, we definitely will be talking about them as we go through. And then I got these two questions. And this is kind of where I think we'll kind of camp a little bit just tonight and see what you think. One question on the card said, what reason is there for trusting in the Bible? How can we trust that any of it is true? A different question on the card said this, how important is it that one understands the issues of authorship or validity regarding the Bible? At the end of it all, doesn't it simply come down to faith that the Bible is actually the word of God? How do you see those two working against each other? I think one stands on this side, kind of throwing up the ultimate question of, how do we know anything? How do we trust anything? How do we have faith in anything? But notice the way it's worded. How can we trust that any of it is true? So trust is a key word. How do we put our trust in any of this? And I think that's a very important question because if you don't think it's trustworthy, we're wasting our time. I mean, not just in this series, but in this whole thing that we're doing. But on the other side, way at the other end of the spectrum, you have that comment. At the end of it all, doesn't it simply come down to faith that the Bible is actually the Word of God? Isn't that just what we need to do, just have faith? And if that were true, then we could skip this series too. Let's just close right now. Say you've asked some very interesting questions, but the answer is we should just have faith and close the series. They're contrasting positions. Anyone want to jump in as to where on this spectrum you might fall? Which one resonates more closely to you? Well, I guess the second one, but I don't, I don't like either poll. Yeah. You know, but I mean, I would say the second one because there is some level of, you know, I think we'll see through the series that there's lots of, there's a reason, for example, why, to me, you know, some of the Mormon texts and, and things like I have issues with as far as historicity and, and corroboration that I don't have with the Bible where, where there's a general level of trustworthiness that I sit there and say, yes, but there is a faith element. And, and so I don't, that's why I'd say I'm closer to that poll, but I still don't like the idea of, oh yeah, you just believe it because I don't feel like I've done that. Okay, and let me be clear. I'm not forcing you to choose one or the other. Saying, like, where in that spectrum would you, what do you like about one, what do you not like about it? I mean, give me your evaluation, because clearly they're at two opposite poles, and I've placed them there on purpose just to find out where in between them you are. Maybe you're at one or the other. That's okay. I just want to know kind of where you fall. Yeah. I'd like to like, have faith that the Bible is the Word of God, but I want some reasons for it. I don't want to just blindly jump into that. And I feel like if there's not, if we can't come up with some valid reasons, then we probably have some bigger issues. Okay. 
Yeah, and it seems kind of odd that we should have this series first, right? It, like, it seems odd that all these years we've been marching through and having discussions about what we should do and shouldn't do and searching the scriptures and debating about how to interpret what it says. But in a way, many of us, like I said at the beginning, have never even stopped to consider what this book is and how it got here. And that seems to be like before we're citing it left and right, we should probably understand just a little bit about that. All right, going this way? Yeah. So you think it's very difficult that we trust any of it, or is it the first part of that question, like, are you really saying, I'm more in the camp of trying to figure out what is the reason? It, the first question, I feel like it's more crucial, like, what reason for trusting the Bible? And if, based on what it, that answer is, like, if that's not good enough, I can't trust any of it. Like, or if, at very least, you can't trust some of it, why can you trust any of it? Like, and not necessarily that you can, that the response would be, necessarily, you can trust none of it, but how can you trust any of them? Okay. Yeah. I think it really asks a lot of difficult questions, and part of me is thinking, well, there's no way we're going to get great answers to all of these. So I can understand the perspective of why you try, why you bother. If it's too difficult, you may end up in a bigger mess than before you started. But I can understand that. Does that bother you, though, to think that, like, there might be just millions and millions yeah. of people oh, who... Yeah, it bothers me a lot. Yeah, just because they haven't really... Like, if they actually thought about it, they would just check out? Or is it just better just not to know? Or Yeah, AJ? Yeah, I think that that's a common question a lot of people have. I mean, I know that's a question I've asked myself, like, well, what does this even mean? But um, I think that if we... I mean, if we can find some semi-decent answers, I think that's good to help other people who... I mean, many other people who are, like, asking, well, why should I even believe in God if I don't even read the Bible, you know? So, I mean, I think it's interesting. I mean, I've dealt with that question personally, you know, so I think that that's something that most people are like, oh, well, like she said, like, there's too much to it. Well, i got to figure out this and this and this. So um, I think they just stop trying and don't bother. Okay. Jeremy? I think it's strange to say that we have to have faith in the Bible or in the Acts of the Bible, that our faith is in Christ, not in the document of the Bible, and I think that we conflate the two, and we, we, when we say we're of God, we're not very careful about what we mean, and do we mean Christ as the Word of God, or do we mean this document which, at the end of the day, is not the same thing, it's not, it's different, but, but see, I wouldn't go to either whole, it's not an issue of trust, I mean, a lot of the statements that we make about them are really just statements we make. They're not value added. It doesn't suddenly legitimize it. It just means that I've said something about it. You mean made a theological statement about well, it? Well, I would say that's a theological statement, not a, not a statement about faith per se, and certainly not something that's going to convince someone who might, oh, uh, maybe, Maybe if I could convince someone that something like inerrancy is nothing more than a theological statement, they might actually listen to what I have to say. I'd like just in response to that, because like, what I have trouble with that perspective, I think I understand what you're saying. Uh, what is that trouble with, like you say, like a statement, oh, this is inerrant, but that doesn't actually add anything from your perspective of it? Um, well then, like sort of with that same question, like why would I trust the Bible over like, something I scribble on a napkin and hand over to you, like, as having just as much value. Um, and maybe it does and should, you know, but like, 
I don't know like what that should have more value than anything, any other communication or written from anyone ever. That's a good distinction because I think we have to talk about that. Like it's true that a, a word like inerrancy is a theological statement. It's somebody's belief about it, whether it makes it so or not, is debatable. Actually, it is what it is. I don't know that adding a theological layer changes what it is. It's just that our belief and how we interpret it. But I think Phil's point is right on. There must be also, whether we add theological statements or not, just because we are, they're, they're statements or doctrines that become very well accepted statements about something and about our belief, doesn't negate that because if those things weren't true in some way, then we could, especially in the area of inspiration or inerrancy, we would just set aside the Bible and say, all right, that's just what they thought at the time, but we can now write our own. Why don't we just do that? We know so much more now, 2,000 years later. We've had sung songs about it. We've done sermons about it, right? Like, let's just rewrite it or just write a new one. Start over. Take the best of what they had and make a new one. And the question we're kind of covering in this series is, why is that not possible? Why would you personally say, no, you can't do that? You can't just start taking pages out and adding new pages in, or just starting over and writing a better one. Why would that offend you if I said you could write a better Bible than what we already have? You have to think through that, because if there isn't a reason, then let's do it. Get rid of all those really difficult passages. Things have changed, right, Monique? Gender roles have changed, you know, we don't like genocide anymore, you know, that's out and it's not in fashion anymore now, so we can rewrite the whole scriptures. Jeremy. I think that, at least to the example of like writing a napkin, that's just true. I, mean, I think that that says more about how the lack of seriousness with which we take, mm -hmm. or with which we hold the religious experience and religious text, like, we wouldn't say to someone, if someone said, I, I wrote down a uh, new thing about physics on a napkin here. It's the same as Einstein. No, that's ridiculous. But that's because we hold certain things in science and certain things in physics with this high esteem. I think it's strange in our own society and culture that we don't do that, and we, we, maybe we should. I mean, maybe it is, if we say that there's a, a science of theology, then at least we can dismiss some of that, well, I can just say whatever. I mean, hopefully we can say that there's some legitimacy uh, so that we can say, yeah, Mormonism's not right, or, or whatever. Well, there is a very strange way in which we hold religious belief. But let me leave that aside for a moment, because I think that's kind of an esoteric point that I'd like to make after I make a few more points. Here's how I'd characterize these. Not to critique these questions too much, they're great questions. They give us the poles that we're trying to find our way between. I think the first one is kind of what I would call an insistence on a Cartesian certainty beyond all possibility. Jeremy and I were kind of talking about this a little bit beforehand, like there's a concept in philosophy, a lot of people have just rejected Cartesian certainty. Some people still think it's valuable. If you don't even know what the reference is, it's to Rene Descartes, and he wrote in the Meditations, for example, one of his more famous works, he spent a lot of time that if there was any chance that something is not true, he eliminated it. He wanted everything to be proven beyond any possibility, not even a reasonable possibility. And then he started reconstructing from there, but didn't get very far. He could literally only establish pretty much his existence only because he was conscious. But he debated for most of it, it drove me nuts, whether he was even alive or not. That kind of desire comes from a mathematician, by the way. 
mean, we get a lot of our mathematics from Descartes. And the need to measure right angles and have everything fit exactly right is not something that's going to ever work in the area of faith. I could ask it to you in the reverse. Do you think that I could prove God to you beyond a reasonable doubt, beyond any doubt? Could I do it? Most of you would say, no. Then I'm going to ask you back, then why are you making me try? Some of you will not step out onto the plank of faith until I've eliminated every single possibility of any doubt. And you are not putting just me, but you're putting the text and the faith and everything to that level of certainty, like a mathematician drawing right angles. On the other side, though, I think the second statement is more of a reliance on uninvestigated faith. Like it's a desire to say, you know what, we can't really know anything, so let's just believe. Let's just have faith and sweep it all under the rug. And that faith crumbles very quickly when it comes into any kind of opposition or any kind of questioning. That kind of faith means that we're leaving the investigation aside. Maybe it's out of laziness. Maybe it's out of fear. Most of the time it's out of fear. That if I look into this too deeply, I might stop believing it. Well, you will when the first person comes forward and actually starts asking you difficult questions that you can't answer because you've never done any investigation. You can tell that this is exactly why we do Exodus. It's we're somewhere between these two poles. We must investigate. We must still believe. But we're trying to do it on a more reasoned basis. Now, this is a recent phenomenon. You know, for many, many years, everybody just believed whatever the church said. It was just authoritative and nobody questioned it. I don't know that it's better to have that. Okay? I don't know that that's better. Most of us in this day and age say, no, that's not right at all. Why is the Bible the Word of God? Because the church told me so. And I don't mean the recent church. I'm saying all the way back into the Middle Ages. I couldn't even read the book. They wouldn't even show it to me. Is that better? I don't think so. But, like some of you started to say, I might trade that for an inability to have any kind of faith because somebody would have to meet the highest standard of certainty for you to even consider it. That's not faith. These weren't questions, but I found these online as I was researching faith. Trying to know something leaves no room for faith. So there's a, there's a belief out there that if you try to investigate, you can't have faith. You know, Because trying to know something means that you're trying to do it on your own power, you're trying to figure it out. So there could be no faith if you try to know something then we should have just stopped at high school at reading, writing, and arithmetic. <laughs> so that's not it. Here's another one. Faith means believing what you know ain't true. I think we believe that there's Christians out there who subscribe to that, right? <laughs> yeah. Maybe there's people who just think that's what faith is. Maybe that's what you think faith might be. Like, hey, you know it's not true, but you just believe it anyway. That's like Mark Twain. Yeah, yeah, that is. That's a Mark Twain quote. Here's a close cousin of that, but stated in a more acceptable manner. Faith is believing something despite the fact that you do not have sufficient reason to believe it's true. I think that one's close enough that some of us might think, yeah, isn't that kind of what it is? Faith is, you don't really have enough facts, but you think, ah, I just make the leap anyway. Let me just present to you what I think it might be. I think it's a reasoned, justified belief in which you've actively placed your trust. Why am I even bringing this up in a topic about the scriptures? 
Because one of the facts you're going to find out right away, for example, is that we don't have one single original autograph of any of the 66 books of the Bible. We don't have one single original. We could say, like, there it is. Not even in fragment form. So you could say, should we just close the series and go, what are we going to be talking about then? But just any topic that we go into when we're trying to look at the foundation of our faith, we should be looking for reasons that justify our belief. Not uninvestigated belief, not blind faith, but we should still have a measure of faith and we're actively putting our trust in. That's what faith is. Yeah? I would agree with that, because I'm thinking about, I don't remember where I heard this, but this guy's talking about, um, kind of like when you go to the dentist, like, logically you have justified reason to believe that, like, anesthetic works, and that, like, for the most part, like, nobody really dies from it, and everybody's okay, but you still kind of panic when they put, like, the mask on you. We're kind of like rock climbing. Like most people will believe like, yeah, harness is going to hold me and there's lots of proof that it will. But you still like kind of freak out and tense up once you're like hanging over the cliff. So it's more like faith is believing what you know to be true, but your emotions and kind of your gut want to override. Yeah, and the trust part of it has to be there. One of the examples I saw is very similar to that is the idea of like you're sitting on an airplane and you assume at that moment that they have enough gas to get to the destination. All right, but if you needed the level of certainty that some of you want to hold faith to, you'd have to get out and actually go measure it. I mean, you're putting your life on the line, right? So there's the trust part. But many of us would accept that, like, of course they have enough. Well, I mean, what's that based on? What is that based on, actually? Where you're probably going to say, well, I've reasoned that they don't want to die either, you know, and the airline doesn't want to be sued, and, I mean, it would make no sense, and why would they want to kill us anyway, and why wouldn't they fill up on gas? I mean, you have, like... All these reasons in your mind. Okay, but that's not certainty. That's just you're putting your trust in this foundational and justified belief that you think this is going to actually work. Same with the harness. Like, how do you really know it's going to hold you? I mean, that's part of the putting the trust in. But if you're going to actually have to do everything with certainty, you wouldn't be able to do anything, really. All right. I wouldn't say I have faith that the airplane has enough fuel to get to the destination. Like... If I said that, someone else said, oh, no, that's not right, because I could prove it. How? Like, by measuring it. But I can't prove God. I can't, like, even like Soren's idea of, like, well, it's knowing something that, or believing in something that you know is true, but your emotions going, I don't know that God is true. Nobody knows that God is true. You even said that. You can't prove that. See, this is where I disagree. We can't prove God right now, just like they're not going to let me measure the tanks, by the way. I'll tell you right now, they're not going to let me measure them. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody looks like me who goes to measure tanks on an airplane, they're not going to let me near it. So it would be impossible. But we can actually prove God beyond a reasonable doubt, just not now. That's where the faith comes in. Let's assume there's a rule that says you can't get off the airplane and go measure it. You can either just get off the airplane and go back to the terminal and not do it, or you can get on the airplane and fly. Most of us, by the way, have never even thought to even check. We just fly. I'm not saying the analogy is perfect and doesn't break down, but I think in the end, of course we're going to know if there's a God or not. The question is, do we put our faith in it? You can't wait till the end, unfortunately, in this one and say, all right, you're right, you do exist, I believe in you. Too late. Too late because that's not faith anymore. Now you have actual sight. You have actual knowledge. There is no chance for faith. And this actually has direct relevance to what we're talking about in this way. If you went back 60 or 70 years, the oldest manuscripts we had of the Old Testament were much, much later in time than when we discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls. And our confidence, our trust, 
our reason for believing in something was even increased. I don't know that in a hundred years from now, we're not going to find out something even closer to the original. We think sometimes that there's absolutely no way to know. In the end, I think there will be. But until then, Hebrews says it this way, faith being sure of what we hope for, certain of what we do not see. Now, the hope for, that concept is lost in English, I think, to us. Like, I'm sure of what I wish. No, that's not what the hope is. In fact, if you actually looked at hope from a biblical concept, it's really what God has promised. That's what hope was. A belief in that what God says will happen is going to happen and a belief in that. That's really what Hebrews is saying. But our word of hope sounds more like, well, I hope you do well. I hope you're okay. I hope I win the lottery. That's not the hope that the people who penned this understood, especially the Hebrew concept of hope. It was firmly rooted in what God has promised God will do. So faith is being sure of what God has promised. But what I just want to leave that point to make sure I've made it is, hey, there are going to be a lot of things you're going to say, well, if we can't know that, what's the point? Don't be lulled into a Cartesian type of certainty or just a decision to just throw up your hands and say, let's just have faith blindly. All right. Here's the verse that everybody cites. It's 2 Timothy 3. I'm starting in verse 14, going through 17. This is Paul speaking to Timothy. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's stop there. Notice that Paul is making the same case. You should be convinced of this. You know the quality, the character of the people from whom you learned it. And you yourself know the scriptures. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Here's the question. Does that give us what we're looking for? One of the questions was, where do we get this idea of inspiration? Inspiration literally comes from this verse of God breathing out, is the literal way it's read. God breathes out scripture. Dan? Um, The scriptures he's referring to is the Old Testament as we know it, right? He's not referring to the New Testament. So maybe we can say, okay, the Old Testament is good to go. What about the New Testament? So your quibble is with the word scripture. They didn't have the New Testament when he wrote them. I think that's a very good point. We're going to come back to it. Anyone else have an observation about this? Yes. And also, like, where did he get the idea that all scripture is God-breathed? Like, just because he said it, like, all scripture is God-breathed. Like, where did he get that idea? So for you to be satisfied, it would have to say all scripture, including this verse. It, it is a letter. He didn't even know that this was going to be considered scripture, but it is. I mean, it's useful for instruction. We get a lot of good things out of like what he's saying. But I'm just curious to know. It doesn't have to be proven to me that like it is God-breathed. I just need to know where he got the idea from. That would be helpful to me. Like, is it an old idea? Is there places in the Old Testament that sort of talk about God-inspiring scriptures? That's where it would be helpful. All right. I think it's also important to know that the word like God breathed or inspired or whatever is, I don't know, I don't remember what this fancy term for it, but it's like only used once. 
it's hard to even say exactly what it means because they have nothing to compare it to, and there's no other context for any sentences. So, I mean, we can say God breathed, but we never really know. That's actually the reason it's translated God breathed. Because it's taking two words. It's taking two words and putting them next to each other. And they are God and breathed out, actually. They're put together. And you're right. It only appears here. And the word inspiration doesn't appear. Let's be clear about that. That's where we get the doctrine, the theological idea of inspiration. At least this is one of the supporting verses, probably the one that's most cited. But that is correct. Jeremy. One of the first issues I have, it, it seems rather self-referential. So it's like, you know, believe this because it's true, and it's true because you believe it. Oh, okay. Uh, it's, it's not really proof of anything except itself. That's theology at that point to me. Which is, by the way, not bad. I mean, you say theology like if it's not attached in the scriptures, we can't use it. There certainly, I mean, there could be Paul doing theology here. What I'm saying is taking it from more than what it might be could be bad theology. Okay. It could be overextending its meaning. Okay. Like something I've been kind of thinking about lately, sort of in preparation, knowing that we were going to do this, kind of goes along with what Jeremy was saying. Like maybe we are attributing too much meaning to like the God breathe and like the infallibility, because obviously it's useful. And I've seen the way God orchestrates things just in my own life. And there's all these other things we're going to talk about, how, how things survived. And that's not a coincidence. And we can look at it. At least I don't think it is. And it's very useful. And I can read the Bible and I connect to people that go through things I went through in their letters. And it's like, you felt this too and I could feel this. And, like, and all that's great and it's useful and it's still, I consider it like a holy thing. But that doesn't have to mean it's like word for word. God's like, write this down. Like It doesn't have to be that. That's where the faith comes in. Like, I think you can know it without having to prove it, and then you can believe it without it being, like, perfect. Well, let's not go too far down the rabbit hole yet. The first thing to do, though, that, <laughs> yeah. that you pointed out is that first we've got Dan, who's got a problem with what is Scripture, and then you're talking about this part about useful for teaching, rebuking, and maybe we're making too much of that. Let me tell you, I was sitting in a church, and they have a statement of faith right there in the bulletin so that you can make sure that you're at a, you know, good housekeeping seal of approval church you know you can make sure that that and listening to the fish will get you into heaven so <laughs> i was reading the statement of faith and everything had a site next to it like we believe that jesus is the son of god in sight you know like we believe in the church like sight like they got to the one that said we believe that the bible is the inerrant word of god and then they put a site and it was this verse of course now you guys are groaning already i know Yes, what scripture is he talking about? Did Paul know that he was writing scripture? Did he mean to include anything that would become scripture? Here's another verse that has been used to at least, maybe Dan will point out, talk about the Old Testament because it specifically references it. This is Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, a common way of holding the Old Testament scriptures in hand, the law and the prophets. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Now Jesus is specifically in context talking about the commandments. In fact, he goes on to talk about the commandments 
But it's interesting that he holds the law and the prophets in such high esteem that he's not going to abolish them, not even the smallest amount. In fact, he goes out of the way to say, I'm not going to do that, I'm going to fulfill them. And you would think, well, somebody in the position of the incarnation of God, if he wanted to, could say, hey, I'm here, that was good until I got here, it's a new game in town, let's go forward. And that's not what he says. Okay, you feel the dissonance? Got a lot of questions? We've stated some polls. We put up some verses. Some of you don't like them, but they're in the Bible. And we're going to leave it there. That's kind of where we're going to leave it. And then we start going through the questions next week and start to answer some of the things that we've got. We've got a lot of work to do. Let's uh, spend some time uh, closing up in prayer and worshiping God. And I think it's a right word to say at the end of all this that our prayer tonight is going to be focusing on faith. Lord, I believe that you are the Son of God, that you are God. Lord, I pray for you to settle us on that understanding. Many of us are all over the place in terms of our faith. Lord, surprise us. As we put our faith in you, that we would find more and more reason for that. But Lord, that it would begin from a place of investigation and reason and the hope that is the promises that you've given us. But Holy Spirit, you dwell inside of us to bring us closer to the Father. And throughout this series, as we wade into deeper waters, may you be the guide that walks us through this. May you be the one, Lord, that has been given to us as a deposit so that we can be sons and daughters adopted of the Father. And we ask, Lord, that that not just be a doctrine, that just be something that comes alive in our series. That we would look past the certainty that we sometimes want to cling to and actively put our trust in you. As the writer of John says, that these things are written down so that we might believe that you are the Son of God. Lord, may we discover these things together and have ultimate faith that you are the Word, that you are God, and that our faith should be wholly dependent on that belief and everything else secondary. Pray this in your name. Amen.